0: Okay, folks, Ecclesiastes 9. Well, believe it or not, uh, we started our study a year ago in Ecclesiastes. I didn't realize, realize it had been quite that long. We've had some breaks here and there um, uh, when, at times when I've, I've been out on Sundays. Um, nevertheless, it's been a, it's been a journey, um, and I was just thinking, you know, what, what are some of the things we've learned so far? We've learned a number of things, but two of them among those... That sort of stood out to me, and it's, um, you know, these, this isn't, you know, rocket science when we think about these, these statements, but uh, one thing that comes to mind that we've learned is that living life is a weary task, <laughs> a business, uh, this sort of cycle of, of life, of work, and of rest, and uh, if you just boil your average week down, it's the components that are there, your homes, your food, your family. Uh, your, your job, uh, we pretty much do about the same thing every week of, of our adult lives. And so life is, is a weary business. Uh, we've also learned, and one of the other things that sort of stood out is that it's impossible to know, and we've seen this in, in more recent weeks, that it's impossible to know for certain what God is doing in the world. Uh, we see God at work, but we fail many times to understand what, what, what God is, is up to. Uh, even though the world is uh, presently generating billions and billions of gigabytes of digital information every year, none of that information could even begin to explain the mysteries of the sovereignty of God. Uh, many things Solomon says are simply beyond our capacity to to know and to understand. Uh, so, how do we respond to that? And people respond to that that kind of limitation in in a in different ways, some people look at the, all the all the confusion and that sort of lack of understanding and sort of grasping it at, at, at all of these things, trying to make sense of that. Some simply conclude that there is no God, uh, like a line from shakespeare 's Macbeth. They believe that life is only a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing that 's their conclusion. Others may think that although there, there might be a God, he obviously has no idea what he 's doing. They imagine him to be asleep at the wheel, um, or like like someone just turning the handle, uh, but dumb, ignorant, disinterested, and disengaged. But not Solomon. As sure as Solomon is about his inability to know the mind of God, he nevertheless believes that what happens in the world is the work of God. God exists, and Solomon is convinced that God isn't limited in his understanding or power, Yet Solomon acknowledges that there are mysteries about life that we cannot comprehend. Uh, Some people expect to have all the answers, uh, and when they fail to discover those things, they get angry with God about what is happening in their life or what is not happening. But wisdom says that God is sovereign and that you and I are finite. Uh, Wisdom understands that Solomon... As Solomon stated in chapter 9, verse 1, that righteous and wise men and their deeds are in the hand of God. But it also knows that being in the hand of God isn't synonymous with or a guarantee for being economically prosperous or uh, physically healthy, shielded from pain and adversity in life, uh, enjoying a trouble-free life, and having everyone smile and appreciate us. So rather than get bitter about life, rather than get angry with the Lord, rather than become anxious about the future, Solomon says we ought to humble ourselves. We ought to confess our faith in the great mysteries of our God and the mind of God like Paul did in Romans 11, verse 33. Paul said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has, who has become his counselor? Now to try to keep sort of Ecclesiastes over a long stretch like that, just to kind of keep the, the, the framework of this, uh, this particular book in our minds, it's, it's important for us to remember that the book basically divides down the middle. It's 12 chapters. It divides basically in the middle between chapters 6 and chapter 7. In the first half of the book, Solomon especially points out the fact that life is frustrating and meaningless if God is not in the middle of it, Uh, if we're we're simply viewing the things that are going on in life as this sort of under-the-sun perspective, not really factoring in uh, God's control over over creation. Uh, Then then Solomon goes from that sort of laying out that, that frustration and the meaninglessness of life without God Uh, He kind of goes through and teaches a series of wise principles that help us to reduce the frustration of living in a sin-cursed world. And so Solomon just says, listen, I'm not trying to say life is not frustrating. Life is frustrating. (laughs) It's it's been cursed. This creation has been cursed because of of the fall of man, uh, which in the end is a blessing, right? Because whenever we launch out and we begin to put our hope and confidence in the good gifts of God, right, those jobs and those homes and that money and those relationships and all of that stuff, some of them gifts from God, when we put our trust and confidence in those things, we come up empty. And that's a blessing that we come up empty, that we keep sort of hitting our heads against the wall looking for satisfaction in those things. Because God in His mercy, He wants us to be dissatisfied with those things. And so that frustration of people all around us every week who don't know Christ going through that cycle of everyday life and, and going through their work week and dealing with the problems that they've been dealing with for years and, and just hitting a dead end every single time, that's, that's not a bad thing because it directs us back to a simple trust in, in God as the one who's made all things and controls all things. Yet Solomon wants us to be wise. He, wants, he, doesn't want us, he doesn't want us to not know some things about how the world works. And so he gives us some simple principles along the way to, to not eliminate the frustration of living in this life, this Genesis 3 world, but to reduce the frustration of living in this sin-cursed world. Then starting in, in chapter 7, <clears throat> Solomon turns his attention toward another target and begins rebuking what we called key misuses of Old Testament wisdom. Now, as the author of the book of Proverbs, Solomon was all for wisdom. We said this, wisdom was, wisdom was his life. Uh, he, he, he lived or was in that kind of culture, surrounded by that kind of culture, that intellectual culture that was all about analyzing life and thinking about life and how life works in God's world and then how you, how you serve God using those wise principles. That was that was Solomon's environment. That was the air in which Solomon breathed as the wisest of all men. But the difficulty with wisdom, as we've already observed in our study, especially in recent weeks, is in the wise use of wisdom. <laughs> wisdom needs to be used wisely. We see that, for example, in... Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Verse 5, answer a fool as his folly deserves that he not be wise in his own eyes. So you you read those two and you say, well, which one do you do? Do you answer a fool or not? (laughs) And the answer is, it will take wisdom to know, right? It will take wisdom to know how to apply this wisdom from Proverbs. Uh, this week, I had um, I had a, a breakfast meeting with a uh, with a couple uh, in our church, and they just a sort of a one time thing. They wanted to talk about a situation in their in their family with some of their 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 relatives, and it was interesting because we were talking about you know they were wanting to know how do we apply God's word to this situation. And what was interesting is we came to this point where it seemed like I think I could tell there was a look on their face of well, Joel. You just said to do this, but then you just turned around and said, but do this. Or you said not to do that, but then you seemed to say something kind of to, to contradict that a few minutes later. And then that's when we got, we, got, we just went, I went, right. this is exactly where I went. And I basically said, you, you have these principles. I mean, they're taking principles from Proverbs. They're taking principles from Matthew. They're, they were pulling all these things together. I was just saying, it takes wisdom to know in these situations how to use these principles. Because this is a, it's a wisdom issue. There is no black and white answer here about how to deal with your relatives. What you have are you have these principles and you have these principles. And in any given situation, you're going to choose in one situation to do this. And you're going to use, you could use a verse of scripture and a principle from scripture to uphold your decision to do that. But then turn right around the next day and decide to do something different (laughs) And use another another verse or another passage of Scripture to to defend or to explain why you made that decision. I mean, if you think about this, we do this all the time. I mean, we don't think, of, think we're doing it, but we're doing it, right? You just think about those of you who have kids, right? And, and the decisions you make in shepherding and, par- and disciplining and training your kids, you have these principles, but they're sort of coming at you from different angles. And in some situations, you decide to do a little bit more of this and less of that, and then you go right over here, and the next day... You do a little less of this and a little more of that. And it's, it's all about <clears throat> knowing in the situation what does wisdom require. I can't just take that one principle and just hammer that one all the time and not let that principle be balanced out with these other principles in Scripture. Now, again, we're not talking about waffling on Scripture. We're not, talking about, we're not saying that Scripture's not clear about its teaching, what we're saying is that especially when we go to the book of Proverbs, we have a tendency to take those things as black and white guarantees and promises. And yet you can go to Proverbs sometimes and you can find one verse in Proverbs and another verse in Proverbs that seem to completely contradict each other. And the thing is they're not contradictory. We just have to understand the purpose of the book of Proverbs. So that's, that's, that's what Solomon is, is sort of dealing with. Uh, this, this misuse or this abuse uh, of wisdom. And, and if you do misuse wisdom and if you do abuse wisdom, Solomon simply says that what you are doing isn't wise anymore. It's not wise anymore. And Solomon was concerned about this because he had witnessed this in the life of, 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 of many times in his life, others making this mistake and, and even in his own personal experience Solomon himself misused wisdom in his own life in decision-making at times. So this is a theme that we've been considering that what is valuable and God-glorifying, if used in the wrong way, can become detrimental and even idolatrous. In other words, we can take the principles of Scripture and we actually can, can use them to get what we idolatry, idolatrously want right we we we've set our minds and our hearts on something we've we've found some proverbial principles to support our pursuit right and basically say back off you know if you're going to if you're going to challenge where i'm headed with this i got verses right i mean i got it's almost like i got scriptural support for what i'm doing and but we're not we're not giving we're not looking at the whole picture right so and even that, think, about it, th- think of the foolishness. I mean, Proverbs tells us that you're a fool to not listen to counsel. And so what's amazing is that people that do that and people come to try to challenge them, they do the very thing that Proverbs warns them against doing, which is to say, I don't need your help. <laughs> a fool does that. <laughs> a fool says, I've, I've made up my mind. I don't need to hear another opinion about this. So, so it even fuels in some cases our idolatry. Now the specific abuse of wisdom that Solomon exposed for us in chapters seven and eight was the idea that a person can somehow control their future by living righteously and wisely enough. A notion that that denies at its core the very place of God's sovereignty. And therefore it would be considered foolish wisdom. Right? That's sort of so somewhat of a, a, an oxymoron, right? These things don't seem to go together. It's like being saying um, your person is pretty ugly, <laughs> or or a tax return—that's right? an oxymoron, or slightly pregnant. Um, nevertheless, it exists. This foolish use of wisdom exists, and this is the thing that Solomon has been really, really pounding away at. Solomon says, "You, you cannot back God into a corner with your pseudo-righteous or your formulaic living." And you can't take some verse from Proverbs and turn it into to a divine promise and blanket truth without exceptions. So here in chapter 9, Solomon continues to address the wisdom, these wisdom lovers of his world, uh, those that had a tendency, if you will, to abuse the book uh, of Proverbs. And, and he takes the time to, to bring a form of correction to them in this, this particular section, really from the middle of chapter 9 all the way through the end of <clears throat> the end of chapter 10 a section about the wise use of wisdom the wise use of wisdom so here are, are a few questions to get you sort of to, for you to think about as we get get started here what skill do you sometimes trust in to ensure that things go well with you what skill do you tr- sometimes trust in To ensure that things go well with you, what ability or what talent do you trust in to make things go well in your life? What ability or skill do you utilize to make things go the way that you want them to go and to fix the problem when things aren't going your way in life? Is it your ability to manage a crisis? Is it your ability to bear down and to just push through the the challenges and the difficulties? To just work a little bit harder is that your is that your skill is that your ability uh, is it your foresight or your ability to plan ahead? John Wooden was former head coach at UCLA, won ten national titles in twelve years. Someone asked him about the secret to his success, and his answer is proper preparation and attention to details. And that's not bad. It's not bad bad advice, right? Uh, but will that safeguard you from adversity and failure? Will proper preparation and attention to details, is that going to keep you from adversity every time? Well, not according to Ecclesiastes. Or maybe it's that you trust in your physical strength, or perhaps it's your wit, or your ability to be liked by others. What about your ability to make conversation, or maybe you trust in your good looks, what skill do you trust in and rely upon to make life go your way? Self-discipline? Your family's influence in the community? Your intelligence? Well, here's, here's a good reminder for us. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Now, why is that a good reminder for us? Well, it's a good reminder because our inclination is to put our confidence in our abilities and our skill to get us through in life. And because it tells us that even though skill and ability and God's gifts are not bad things, they, they're not things that we should trust in or use for our own selfish advantage. But the challenge of Scripture is this, that the Bible also encourages us So it it tells us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's very clear about where we're to put our trust and our confidence. But the scriptures also encourage us to think ahead. It also encourages us to to plan, to pay attention to details, to make decisions, to work hard, (laughs) to be diligent. In fact, we are admonished to do these kinds of things all through the book of Proverbs. And it's wise to do those things. But Solomon says, we can abuse wisdom. The person that plans, the self-disciplined person, the one who thinks about every contingency, every possible future event or circumstance, can begin to idolize those skills. (laughs) Acting as if his or her ability and skills are his or her strong tower. It takes wisdom to know how to use and not abuse God's wisdom and the gifts that God has given to us. Now, biblical wisdom from Proverbs is clearly in Solomon's sights as he writes this section. And the wisdom of Proverbs is a very good thing. But some in Solomon's world were acting as if wisdom were God. Elevating skillful management, elevating planning and prudence above God himself wanting to push proverbial principles into the category of absolute principles so that they could just count on the principles to control the future, not realizing that by doing that they were no longer trusting in God with their future. Right. So they're taking these principles and then they're relying on their own skill and savvy and ingenuity and they're thinking that they can take these God-given principles and then take their skill and that then they can control their future. But in the end, all the, they're just cutting God out. say, so we don't have to trust in God. We have these principles. And we have all this, this self-sufficient stuff, right? We have all this ability and skill. So they were, they were pushing those principles into that place and, and getting to a place, practically speaking, where God is no longer necessary because we think we, we can know a lot about the future. And even when things happen that we don't like, we can just plug in some principle to get us back on track and achieve what we ultimately envision as our goal in life. So there are great benefits to wisdom. Solomon has already made that clear back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In fact, he says, I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. So we're not saying that there's not advantages to wisdom. I mean, he compares, he says, wisdom is better, is is, is like to foolishness compared to foolishness as as light is to darkness. I mean, they're not not even close. It's extremely valuable for us to have God's wisdom. But what we have in, particularly in that wisdom literature in scripture, the Proverbs and, and, and other places, it's extremely valuable, but it's not invincible. So what about us? Do we deal with this kind of thinking, this sort of threat in the Christian life? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, if I'm meeting with a guy, if I'm having a conversation with a guy whose wife is, is, is threatening to divorce him and I'm giving him counsel about how to love his wife and serve his wife, I know what's in the back of his mind in most cases, and that is, so, Joel, you're telling me that if I do these things then my wife won't leave, right, that she'll turn around. If you have a set of parents and you're counseling a set of parents who have kids and they have a, a child that's, that's going through a, a rebellious period in their life, and what do we do when you begin to tell those parents, this is how you should be training and teaching and disciplining and loving and all those things? There's a good possibility in the back of their minds they're thinking what? Formula thinking. So you're telling me that if I do these things with my kids, that my kid will repent and come back. Or, or maybe my wife's counseling with the, a young lady who, who wants to be married, and yet things there's not a lot of prospects out there, and she's getting a little anxious, and so she's telling her, "This is and just you. You need to focus on be, being the right kind of person. <laughs> Less attention on finding the right kind of person, more attention on being the right kind of person." But you know, that in the back of that young lady's mind, she's thinking, "Okay, but if I do all this that you're telling me to do, God's going to bring me somebody, right?" You see what I'm saying? We, we, this is happening all the time. We're thinking, if we just do what this, these principles say, then we should be able to know with confidence exactly how this stuff is going to turn out, right? But I mean, what, do we, what do we want? When pe- people come in, they're asking for counsel. A lot of times we, we know that what they might really be wanting is they, just, they might be wanting a foolproof recipe. Right? They want to know that the cake's not going to go flat when they cook it, right? They want a, a formula, they want to know that their wife will come back. They want to know that their children will, t- will turn around. They want to know that God will give them a husband. They want a guarantee, which is a problem, I think, with so much of the teaching in the church today. Because a lot of teaching in the church today, I think, promotes this kind of thinking, right? We've talked about this sort of health and wealth, prosperity gospel stuff, but it's everywhere. And it just says that if you just plug in the right things in your Christian life, you can assure yourself of the right outcome you can avoid adversity and you can guarantee that you'll experience perpetual prosperity in your life well says so, but it seems that nobody has more intolerance for dashed expectations than Christians do right i mean do we really do we act sometimes much different from anybody else when it comes to dashed expectations sometimes the Christians get the most Wound up right when they expect something and don't get it, and it's because I mean everybody, everybody's sort of lives that way. Everybody has a vision of where they're going and what they want to see in any given day. But sometimes I think Christians are even protesting more when they when they don't get what they want, and it's because uh, added to the misunderstanding about expectations, there's this spiritual component that says but I deserve this. I mean, God, God should be doing this in my life because he says he would do this. Really? Where did he say that? And it's interesting when you push people, where does God say that this specific thing will happen? And you find it's not really there. They're constructing these things, right? They have some pieces and they're trying to put it all together. Solomon says, reality check, right? Follow here, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors. And neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor faith men of ability. For time and chance, which is not really, when you hear the term chance, that you most people think of like fate, but we know that's not true because of everything God or Solomon has already said about God sovereignty, but it's really a, the word for time there could be translated, as it's a word that speaks about seasons of life. Seasons of life, and we're going to talk about this more in Ecclesiastes 11, but there's seasons of life that come, and they just come upon you and, and you don't know like when they're coming and what they're, what they're going to all entail, but seasons of life, and then even the term chance could, is, can be translated as just an occurrence, an occurrence of misfortune. He's just saying, listen, for time and chance overtake them all. So he, he says, listen, I've looked out there and I've seen people that are, are, have abilities and I've seen people that don't, and guess what? They all go through the same stuff. Moreover, verse 12, man does not know his time. I mean, he's already told us this numerous times, this inability that we have to know what's coming. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. So we, we expect life to follow certain predictable patterns, which he illustrates with five examples here in verse 11, right? We expect that the fastest runner will win the race. We expect that the strongest warrior will win the fight. We expect that the skillful will not go hungry. We expect that brilliant analysis will lead to profits in business. We expect that the smart people will be the rich people and that they will be the ones celebrated by society. And Solomon says... That is sometimes the case, but not always. Not always. You have to expect the unexpected. So in verses 1 to 10, and we looked at this last time, Solomon talks about death a lot and simply says death is unavoidable. Okay, If you don't get that, you're not, you're not very wise. I mean, that's, that's about one of the most obvious things that you can just look around life. Anybody can look around. All right, people are dying. Okay, that's, That happens. You have to face the reality that death is unavoidable. But here he comes along and he says, not just that, you also have to know that life is unpredictable. Death is unavoidable, but life is unpredictable. God will dispense the unexpected from time to time, which is why Solomon up to this point has encouraged us to enjoy God's gifts, enjoy our work, and expect the unexpected up to and including our death. So we don't necessarily know what God is doing. No matter how strong we are, no no matter how smart we are, many bad things happen to us in this life, and there is no way for us to predict when they will happen. (laughs) Life is unpredictable. Its Its misfortunes are inevitable and often inescapable. And in His mercy, God tells us to expect the unexpected. This is not a pop quiz, okay? God doesn't—he never intended for us to think that we could predict what's coming. And so, in His mercy, He just tells us—it's just one way He tells us. He tells us and illustrates this all through the Scriptures, right? But in this book, it's—it's very pointed that we don't know what's coming. We cannot discover; man cannot discover what's coming after him, and we have to expect the unexpected. Now, as we walk through the remainder of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, Solomon is going to say a lot about foolish living and about wise living. And there's a, it's, it's a difficult section to outline. Uh, when you, you know go through different commentaries whatnot, it's all over the map, <laughs> the way people try to break this section down. But I think what Solomon is doing here is showing us that wisdom is good, because he's going to highlight these proverbial principles. Some of them, as we look at them, we'll go, oh, yeah, that sounds like Proverbs. Yeah, That, that sounds like some things I've already already heard and understood about, about the, the, the proverbial teaching. So he'll show us that wisdom is good, but he'll also show us that wisdom has some limitations and that we need to acknowledge those things. Or we could state it this way. Wisdom is valuable, valuable but it's not invincible. Or you say, wisdom is valuable, but it is not invulnerable. And Solomon goes back and forth through these verses highlighting these two realities. The reality of wisdom's value and the reality of wisdom's vulnerability. So we pick up in verse 13. He says, also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom, yet no one remembered that poor man. So here here we have a small city. It's about to be crushed by a superior force, a king, a ruler, and his army. But the town beggar comes up with a plan to deliver the city. Interestingly, with the mention of when he says this poor wise man, (laughs) Solomon is already taking a shot at, at the wisdom worshipers of his day, right? By even suggesting that this man is both poor and wise. Because according to their view of Proverbs, a wise man wasn't supposed to be poor, Right? Proverbs 15, 6. Great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is in, the, is in the income of the wicked. Proverbs 22, 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Proverbs 24, 3. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So we don't know how, but through some brilliant scheme, the siege is broken on the city, and the city is saved. And the celebration begins with the citizens of that town, but in the midst of the dancing and the feasting and the singing, the beggar is forgotten as he watches most of what is going on from his shack. (laughs) Unrecognized, still in poverty, ignored by society, even though it was his idea that led to their rescue. Verse 16, so I said, wisdom is better than strength, and that's illustrated that right there in the, in, the, in the story but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded so Solomon says wisdom beat the powerful army that was on the attack and in that sense it is valuable but in this particular story wisdom did not lift this man out of his poverty as the rules stated were, was, was supposed to happen The rules said that if you were wise, you would stand before kings. The rules said that if you were wise, you would be exalted, that you would be acknowledged. And that does happen sometimes, but not always, right? Wisdom is valuable, but it is not invulnerable. It is a great and necessary thing, but it's not something that you use as some magical formula to get what you want. And this is the pattern that Solomon sets for us, and it's the one that he continues to follow. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So again, soft, wise words of insight are better than the king's cries and, and, and shouts. We know this is true from Proverbs. Proverbs 16.24, Pleasant words are a honeycomb sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. Proverbs 15.1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. Verse 4 of that chapter, A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. Solomon says, Wisdom is good, and it is valuable in war. Then he says, verse eighteen, at the beginning, wisdom is better than weapons of war. It's been said that the greatest generals are those who find a way to win without even fighting. So wisdom, Psalm says, wisdom is the big gun. I mean, in that story, that that illustration, you just get wisdom is the big gun. <laughs> Somehow, some way, it didn't take strength; it took wisdom, right? So wisdom is the big gun, the big weapon. But it doesn't solve every problem. Wisdom does not solve every problem. That's why he says in the end of that verse, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. That is to say that some opponents in time of war can be reasoned with, but in some situations no amount of wisdom will prevent the fighting and the shedding of blood. So we we have examples, even in Scripture, of of, of war being averted by the use of wisdom. But in some cases, wisdom is not going alone to prevent every quarrel. It's not going to resolve every conflict. So you can plan wisely, but one sinner can disrupt and destroy much good, he says. And Solomon just keeps right on rolling. Verse Verse 1 of chapter 10, there's really no break here. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. So you just start with, with the picture. The picture is, you, you, imagine you've got this bottle of the finest, most expensive perfume where every drop is is valuable. And then for those of you ladies who have a, 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 this bottle of perfume, you open up that bottle of perfume and you notice that in that bottle of perfume, there's a dead fly floating around inside. Now, what do you do? You just scoop it out, right? <laughs> you just scoop it out, throw it in the trash can, and then, and then apply the perfume. Probably not. And in this case, we're not talking about a, probably a bottle. We're talking about more of a jar size. And so this wouldn't have been, this fly is plural. It's uh, well, not one fly. Okay, this is evidently something that attracted a swarm of flies, and, and a number of these flies died and they've contaminated this, this, this perfume. And in a similar way, Solomon says, a lifetime of wisdom can be destroyed by a moment of foolishness. Uh, the King James Version here sounds a little bit better, but it smells about the same. Dead flies, I like the way King James says here, dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. <laughs> so doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor so he's just saying no, nothing was wrong with the fragrance itself but it had attracted a swarm of flies some of those insects had died and the stench of their little carcasses had turned the perfume rancid so what is solomon's point his point is that wisdom is sweet it's good right wisdom is sweet it is good it is like it is like fragrant Perfume, p- perfume. but it doesn't take much foolishness to turn things sour because folly stinks. An ounce of folly, we could say, can destroy a ton of wisdom. All it takes is one rash word, one rude remark, one hasty decision, one foolish pleasure, one angry outburst. Derek Kidner was spot on, and he said this in his commentary. He says, quote, it is, e- it is easier to make a stink than to create sweetness, right? You spend a lot of time making sweetness, but it doesn't take a lot to make a stink, right? So wisdom is good and valuable, but sometimes one sinner can destroy much good and a little folly can spoil the whole thing. So what do we do? That being the case, do we just give up on godly wisdom? Do we just rip the book of Proverbs out of our Bibles? Do we just decide to follow the impulses of our hearts without any concern for the proverbial wisdom of the Old Testament? Well, of course not, right? He said back in chapter 7, uh, Solomon here in Ecclesiastes, do not be excessively righteous, do not be overly wise, why should you ruin yourself? But do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool, why should you die before your time? So we don't, we, we, we don't, we don't manipulate God's wisdom. We don't pursue excessive righteousness trying to plug in these things into our formula way of thinking to get what we want. But at the same time, we don't rip Proverbs out of our Bible and say, well, then that, enough of that. And then we just go down the road of wickedness. Because he said, if you do that, you're going to die before your time. <laughs> don't, don't think that there's not consequences for our foolish living. And this is really where Solomon goes next in verse 2, chapter 11. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left, which clearly means that Solomon, right, was a Republican, (laughs) not a Democrat. I'm kidding. No, I'm not. No, okay. (laughs) No, Solomon is simply saying that the fool's lack of godly discernment directs him towards the left, which is a place sort of characteristically in scripture of trouble, of disaster, whereas the wise man goes toward the right and finds honor and peace. Uh, The New Jerusalem Bible says it this way, the sage's heart leads him aright, the fool's leads him astray. The sage's heart leads him aright, the fool's heart leads him astray. Similarly, he states here in verse 3, even when the fool walks around uh, along the road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. That is to say when a fool walks around, it's obvious. like if, you, you ha- if you've known some fools, okay, it's, it's obvious, right? Uh, it, it's, as if these, it, it's as if these people are surrounded by a cloud of senselessness and, and they literally are declaring by their living that they're a fool. Say, my name is Joel, I'm a fool. You know, where's your sign? Like, I have a sign, I'm, I'm a fool. It's just so obvious when we see people live this way. And Solomon says, wisdom protects you and it protects me from that kind of absurdity, that kind of, of foolishness, that stupidity, that kind of disaster that comes from ignoring what God has said in Proverbs. Solomon follows this with another example in verse 4. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. So he says, if the king or any ruler rages against you, wisdom can diffuse the situation. Right When you realize that his anger is not personal and you respond with quiet resilience and with reason, when you present your viewpoint in a reasonable and a non-threatening manner. But if instead you decide to take the fool's plan and to go blow to blow with the king, you will probably lose your job and maybe even your life. So once again, wisdom is seen as priceless and invaluable and life-saving, but is it invulnerable? No. Does it mean that wisdom will always protect you from calamity or that the wise will always be exalted and that the foolish will always be cast down in this life? Nope. Verse five there's an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which error which goes forth from the ruler, folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land now verse seven he's not talking about the slaves being exalted and that being a good thing, so this isn't a this isn't the when you read that it sounds like maybe in other places where it talks about those who are lowly will be lifted up. That's not at all what's going on here. In fact, he's saying that men who ought to be slaves because of their foolish living and princes who should ride on horse because of their wisdom and ability to lead, that they, that they in a wrong and inappropriate way, are doing the opposite. That this shouldn't be. But sometimes it's exactly what's going on because God has decided to break the pattern and he wants us to be prepared for that. So speed, strength, wisdom, discernment, usually if you have those kinds of qualities, you do well in advance. But God will sometimes bring a different result so that you won't trust in those gifts, abilities and skills. And Solomon just keeps giving us more of more of the same. In fact, so this is the struggle when people read this section they think it's as if Solomon takes a time out and just says, oh, okay, I've been talking about the vanity of life and all these things, but let me just give you some good proverbial principles on how to live life. <laughs> and they all just seem disconnected. But the thread, I think what he's showing is that there are, there's these these principles and you need to heed them. They're, it's, it's, they're, they're, it's wisdom. It's God's wisdom on how to live life. It's just you have to understand that you cannot use these things or or misuse these principles to get what you idolatrously want because sometimes people are putting those principles into practice but the outcome is very different than what they expected. And so to me what he's doing is he's just going back and forth and he's just using different Proverbs as this example of people using God's wisdom in certain ways and sometimes it turns out this way and sometimes it turns out in a different way. All of that driving us to trust in God, ultimately. So Solomon just keeps right on going. Wisdom isn't invincible or invulnerable, but it is valuable, which is true when it comes to our work ethic, right? Proverbs extols the value of hard work. We know that Proverbs 10.4, Proverbs 13.4, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Now I I know what it is. (laughs) Now I know what my problem is. I've just been too diligent. <laughs> Actually the, the idea of being fat there is a little, little different than that. But so Solomon's not denying that. Solomon is not denying the reality that when people work hard, that's a good thing, right? He's not denying that reality, but he is saying that when you work hard, there are certain risks that come with that. Verse 8, He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. In other words, you might be working hard for months trying to build a well so that you can water your crops or that you can water your flocks, but then fall into the hole that you were digging and break your neck. Or you might be tearing down a wall to put something in its place that will be more productive and you stick your hand into a cavity, which is very common in the ancient Near East. These places, vipers and serpents would find these places to hide. You just stick your hand in there and guess what? You get bit by a viper. He says, you might be digging out rock and and a large stone fall on you. You might be splitting wood and suffer a life-threatening injury. So again, proverbial wisdom says hard work is great. Hard work is great. God, God values that. But it's not an absolute God-trumping formula for success. And hard work is usually profitable, but not so much if you don't work smart. And again, here is another benefit of wisdom. Verse 10, if the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites ...or being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Well, in one case, it's, it's interesting because in one case, with the axe, it's folly to hasten. So it's, it's as if he's saying people rush out and start chopping wood, but they don't slow down and take time to sharpen the axe. But then in the other example, with the snake, it's folly to not be hasty, but it's folly to delay because you don't want the snake to come out and, and mess around with the charming part, Right. It's like you need to, get to the, you need to get on with the charming. You don't want to just let the snake come out and not be paying attention to that. So it's, it's actually a delay that creates the problem because the snake might bite not just the person that's charming the snake but the person that's there to watch the person charming the snake. There would be no profit if that happened, right? You wouldn't have any customers if you were dra- dragging your feet on the charming thing. So what is it? It's like he gives us examples of two different things. So what is it, Solomon? Does wisdom give success? Well, if it is used wisely, it will. And, but that only most of the time. Again, the, the absolute nature of these things, that's the concern. So he goes on, verse 12, "...words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of, it's, the end of it is wicked madness." Yet the fool multiplies words. Now notice the statement. No man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Derek Kidner again writes this. So the picture begins to emerge of a man who makes things needlessly difficult for himself by his stupidity. And there's a bit of of humor here because if you'll notice, the fool is boasting about his future plans, and he's wearying people with all of his talk about his future plans, and yet he can't even find the way to the city, which in those days would have been cities were pretty clearly marked (laughs) in those days. So that is to say, he's so busy talking about the future that he loses his way in the present. But that's the fool, right? That is the fool. That is the way the fool is described for us in Proverbs: no fear of God. A disregard for God's holiness, impulsively disobedient, lazy, morally blind, unwilling to take advice, and directionally challenged. Right? Unable to accomplish at times the most intuitive tasks or to make the simplest of decisions. Our expression we use is He doesn't have enough sense to come in out of the rain. Have enough sense. So, just to sum up, and we'll stop here, we'll pick up here next time. Folly is bad. Folly, foolishness is destructive. On the other hand, wisdom has immense value, but it must be employed wisely, and its limitations must be acknowledged. We can't use the wise principles of Scripture in the way that Job's friends used it. We can't use it as a formula to protect ourselves against all trouble. Solomon reminds us that living according to the teaching of Proverbs will protect us from a lot of harm. I mean, these statements are true. The way of the treacherous is hard. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. The way of the lazy is as a hedge of thorns. An angry man, Proverbs says, stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Those things are true, right? But we don't put our trust in our ability to manage our lives in certain situations. We don't put our confidence in our skill or in our intellect or even in wisdom. The sovereign God is our high and strong tower. So live wisely and skillful under the sun, but be on guard against the idolatrous desires in your heart. And be on guard against the temptation to use good things in foolish ways, trying to get what you want or to protect yourself from adversity. So that's to me what all those sort of proverbs sort of thrown together and trying to figure out, is Solomon just giving us some good wisdom on communication and good, good, good advice about work and about discipline and about all these things? To me, the thread that goes through all of those Proverbs is that he just keeps saying the, the proverbial principles are true, but they're not absolute. They're not meant to be used as a tool to somehow back God into a corner and to demand that God do for you what you want Him to do for you. That's not the way, that's not the purpose. So when Scripture says to parents, train up a child, right? That There's wisdom in that. There's wisdom in dedicating your children in the ways of God and teaching and training your kids. But don't take that proverbial wisdom and say, oh, but that means that if I raise them right, that they will always choose right or they will always come back to the right. That's not the point of that of that proverb, and it's not the point of a lot of the proverbs. It's not to say, God must now do this for me in this particular way because of what it says there in Proverbs. That's not... That's not the purpose. All these things should be driving us to the Lord, to him as our strong tower and our refuge. So we'll pick up here. I'll be out the next two Sundays. Uh, Mike Payne will be uh, subbing in uh, for the next two weeks because I'll be preaching the the next two weeks uh, while Shane is out. So I appreciate your prayers, and I know you'll enjoy uh, Mike. Uh, He always does a great job.